When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, Shoot that, shoot that! And even, Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. You're getting the most out of being at a game with American Express. The card member entrance, the lounge, and out tip-off. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Welcome into another edition of the Hangtime Podcast. I'm your host, Seku Smith. Back home in Atlanta, free from the bubble where we came to you for weeks on end as the NBA season concluded in Orlando with the Los Angeles Lakers winning a championship. Glad to be back in a normal environment and get a chance to uh, lean back into uh, conversations here on the podcast that are basketball-centered, of course, but a different slice than the season and the games and the bubble and all of those things that we've been talking about. Today we have a great visit from... Best-selling New York Times author, longtime NBA writer, Kurt Gowdy Award winner at the uh, Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame, Harvey Ayrton is here on the podcast, and he's got a fantastic book out. Our last season, a writer, a fan, a friendship, and it's about various things, but really about a relationship between Harvey and a longtime Knicks season ticket holder, Michelle Musler, and just the fascinating journey they went on as friends and confidants. And uh, Harvey, thanks first and foremost for coming on and talking about the book. I have appreciated your work for years. This struck me, though, as a person who does the same thing in that this is a really personal account of what you were going through throughout these years and what Michelle Musler was going through, just being an observer, fans, and people who are locked into this world immersed into this basketball world that very few people would probably understand was it is intriguing for you just diving back into that space and and trying to flesh this story out Seku, first of all welcome back to the world outside the bubble <laughs> appreciate it it's probably a slightly more intimidating world than what you experienced because it was so successful obviously but this was a very challenging project for me uh, for a couple of reasons i mean when i started it not long after Michelle had passed away in June of 2018. And in many respects, I was still mourning her. This was someone who, over the years, starting out really as a source for me, sitting behind the Knicks bench, she became my eyes and ears. As I was a reporter back then for the uh, tabloids in New York, first the New York Post and the Daily News. So of course, the possibility of creating a friendship with someone who could hear just who UB Brown was screaming at, or Red Holzman even back in during the days when he came back for his second turn, and then on and on through the Patino years and everyone else was a great benefit to me. But the uh, friendship sort of turned into more of a mentorship. Michelle's career was in human resources. And eventually she owned her own company as an executive trainer. So this was a woman who was well-versed 
in career tracks and career crises. And she sort of became that larger than life person. I often called her the wise family elder I never had. I mean, I grew up in a blue collar family in public housing and my parents, good people, but they didn't have formal education. And, you know, no one in my family really, you know, was, you know, attuned to journalism and writing and all the things that we as journalists, uh, whether you're on air or in print or whatever, you know, it's easy to fall into that realm of insecurity. And we need those people to kind of lift us up and advise us. And so Michelle became that for me. And, you know, again, relationship created by the access that we as reporters had to the floor in those days. I mean, I'm not so sure that, you know, that would have been quite as possible these days when courtside is, is sort of a diff, has a different feel and dynamic to it. And of course, most arenas have the media well upstairs. But she was someone that I, I was able to create this relationship with. The book is kind of a memoir for me, but I never fancied myself, you know, more as a storyteller, a guy who wrote about issues, never really wanted to be part of the story. And if I was going to do a memoir uh, or something that at least covered, you know, the arrow of my career, I wanted it to be something where I could tell a story. And the narrative of, and the evolution of our friendship and relationship over 40 years uh, seemed like the perfect way to do it. It was just such an interesting perspective. And I wonder for you, you're operating in this space where you're, you're covering the team or writing about the team. But as you mentioned, you've got somebody else with a perspective that's coming from a fan perspective. And I think they're, they're unique fans probably in every market, people who really embody the spirit of what Michelle Musler did, somebody who was as locked in to this team as you could possibly be, but had such uh, a wealth of opinions and, and feelings about the people involved. I thought her feelings about James Dolan were fascinating to me, you know, where, where most people come down really hard, you know, kind of hard line about Dolan and how they feel about him. The fact that she was even interested in applying her professional perspective to Dolan was awesome. Like, you know, what, what an intriguing thing for somebody to look at him and, and as kind of a case study. Did you find that her opinions about the NBA, about the people involved, mirrored what you felt maybe were your instincts or feelings about those people? Well, you know, we had a lot of things we agreed upon. You know, we both agreed that in the roughly four decades that we both were around the garden on a, on a regular basis, she more than I, because there was a point in my career, the early 90s, when I became a Sports of the Times general columnist at the newspaper. And, um, you know, so I was out covering, you know, the Yankees mid-90s dynasty, a lot of Olympics and tennis became a big uh, favorite of mine. I always ultimately wandered back to the garden. The NBA has always been my first love. I grew up with it. And so there were things that we agreed up, agreed upon and things that we didn't. Michelle, despite all of her years sitting behind the bench, she connected in, in different ways. She was not a, a hardcore X and O person, although she always claimed that, you know, as soon as a play was called out, she knew exactly what they were going to run. But she was fascinated by the people. Even the role players, 
And because role players or guys who were sitting at the end of the bench didn't get off the bench much, they tended to have more contact with the fans behind the bench. I mean, in the book, I tell the story where she brought Ron Cavanaugh, who was with the Knicks for a cup of coffee during the UB Brown years, where they were, the team was hit by a lot of injuries to its front line. And they signed this guy. He'd come out of, um, I think he played with the, the Harlem Wizards or, you know, one of those barnstorming teams. He's a seven-foot guy. And she tells the story of how she wound up bringing him home for Thanksgiving dinner one year. <laughs> but she found all these people and their backgrounds to be really interesting. She developed friendships with Scotty Brooks and Doc Rivers, who you know only played for the Knicks for a very short time. Mm-hmm. Um, Charles Oakley, uh, she became uh, good friends with. All, a lot of the people who um, the regulars of the Garden, Mike Breen and, and Van Gundy and Clyde Frazier, you know, all made a point of stopping by and, and chatting with Michelle before the games. One of the people who sat behind her once asked her, are you here to watch the game or take attendance? <laughs> her fascination with the sport, aside from watching the game, she loved the action. And in fact, Michelle was the best, was the sports editor of her high school newspaper back at a time, it was in the late 40s, when, you know, women didn't do that. They weren't involved in sports in that regard. She had fantasies or a notion about being a journalist again not a not an industry that was particularly open to women and then five kids later right out of college you know she wound up launching a career in corporate america in human resources when her marriage failed and she kind of was left with five children to raise by herself so her personal story is fascinating but the thing about her life at the garden it was that that was where she kind of reconstructed her social life because she lived in the southern Connecticut suburbs of New York and she couldn't afford to move that large a family into Manhattan, let's say. So she built a social life for herself around the garden, the games, the bar downstairs at the garden where she got to know a lot of the player wives and girlfriends and team executives. And she actually, you know, she ran with Willis Reed's crowd after Willis had retired from the Knicks, people like Cal Ramsey and Bush Beard were all her good friends. Quite a remarkable achievement for a suburban white woman in those days to kind of infiltrate that world. And that's what made her so fascinating to me when I first met her. When you look at the, the scope of the Knicks over that four decade span, and everybody knows about the struggles they've had as a, as a franchise trying to win, trying to put themselves back into um, kind of a, not just a consistent playoffs space, but a, a championship contender status. Is there something about the Knicks? And, I, and I've always felt this not being from New York, but certainly traveling to New York plenty of times, being at the garden for games. There's some kind of history and aura about the garden. And I've heard this from players from coaches, from other reporters. There's something about when you're in New York, when you come there, that there's just a a different vibe to it. And I don't know if people from New York who are there as consistently as you have been over the years, do you guys feel that same thing, that when you're there, there's just something different about it? Or when you're going through the years covering events, you know, Knicks games at the Garden, there's just, it's, it's different than it is in other places because of the setting, because it's New York, because of the the history um, and the crowd and the people that you see in that building. It just feels different. Yeah, I think, you know, what I've always said, and I remember exploring this with people when I was doing 
about 10 years ago, I did the book When the Garden Was Eden. And of course, you know, that was very different kind of project. I mean, that was me spending significant time with the, the guys who were the icons of my youth growing up in New York. And, you know, the kind of the universal feeling was that there's nothing quite like a Knicks team that is very good in New York. I mean, all the other teams, or let's just say over the course of the last some odd, you know, few decades, mm-hmm. if you're the Giants have a run as a Super Bowl, well, that's great. But, you know, half the city or 40% of the city and, and you know, let's say the metropolitan area are Jets fans. And if the Rangers make a run, well, yeah, the majority of the hockey fans, I would say, are uh, Ranger fans, not so much Islanders and Devils. The Islanders do have their stronghold on the island. But it's also hockey, which is not a mass appeal popular sport. Uh, Baseball, the city is divided between Yankees and Mets fans. The Yankees obviously are the bigger draw. But those National League fans, New York was more historically a National League city back in the days of the Dodgers and Giants. So there's a lot of generational attachment to the Mets. With the Knicks, you know, going back to the early 70s when they really captured the imagination, I I hesitate to say the nation because David Stern used to always lecture me that the Knicks of those days were a regional phenomenon simply because the NBA did not have the marketing apparatus. It wasn't, it was, he used to call it a mom and pop league. It didn't have the marketing apparatus to really create a national phenomenon. And although he also used to say that those teams first gave him the idea. Remember, David in those days was, a, was an outside counsel and then became in-house counsel at the NBA. Mm-hmm. He said, watching those teams play and you know the different personalities, the different backgrounds, the sort of the, the biracial constitution of the team, just the beautiful athletes, Walt Frazier, you know, Earl Monroe, gave him the initial thoughts of what the, or, or idea of what the NBA could become looking around courtside and seeing Woody Allen and Dustin Hoffman and all the rest of them made him understand that the NBA had the, had the potential to blur the lines between entertainment and sports. And of course, that's what started happening in the early 80s and on to the, the Jordan-dominated 90s. But as far as New York and the vibe in New York, I think it's that notion that the Knicks, you know, again, in the early 70s, you know, the Nets were barely a blip on the radar playing out in Long Island in the ABA, mm-hmm. then moved to New Jersey and really were kind of not really part of the New York mindset. So when the Knicks are good, it really binds the city and the region like no other team can. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they are based right in the heart of Manhattan and the garden is a beautiful building. You know, it's one thing I always give Dolan, even the renovated garden now really has maintained most of its character. In fact, it's improved upon it in a lot of ways. So um, I think it's location, you know, the proximity to Broadway and Madison Avenue. The league has done quite well, despite the lack of the Knicks' ability to be competitive these last 20 years. But as far as how we feel and how people like yourself, when you come to New York and feel that electricity and the city pulsating with passion for this particular sport and that team. Um, can you think of a, of a bad team that get other than the Cubs and the Red Sox when they had failed to win, right. but a team that's been bad for so long that gets so much attention? Yep. I mean, no matter what they do, a coaching change 
becomes an instant national story. But again, it's because of what they represent to the country's big media market. In any book, Harvey, I, I go through it and I'm always like highlighting stuff that catches my eye. Little things that to the author might not seem like a big deal, but to nerdy basketball fans such as myself, I'll see something that stops me in my tracks. And you, it was in a part of the book where you were talking about James Dolan and kind of the what Michelle, her impressions of him and kind of how she thought of him. And then you relay the story of your own inside of, of this part of the book where you were kind of contrasting whether or not James Dolan was the kind of owner who would acknowledge reporters, which apparently he does not um, in press conferences or any other setting, with the late Jerry Buss in the way he interacted with reporters. And you told this awesome story about uh, him inviting the New York media contingent into his limo one night and then letting you guys have the run of the limo for the rest of the evening, which for a working journalist sounds like the greatest night ever. Um, I'm just curious what you remember about that. And I think we all have stories doing this job that, you know, we, that we kind of file away. That had to be one that made you even laugh thinking about it, I'd imagine. The reason why that happened. And, and of course, in those days, Jerry, I think, was much more visible around the forum. You know, I think in later years, uh, he wasn't, based on what our mutual friend Howard Beck has told me, he wasn't quite as, as uh, conspicuous. Mm-hmm. Um, but in those years, you know, yeah, he was out front and very visible and involved. And so whenever New York guys go to the West Coast to cover games, we're always on, you know, the most ridiculous deadlines because it's three hours earlier than than New York. So we've got to get our stories done, you know, jam a couple of quotes in, and we're out. Whereas, you know, the Laker guy, the Laker beat guys, you know, are going to be sitting there for another two hours because the game is over at 10 o'clock and they've got to maybe midnight. So we were probably 45 minutes after the game, we were done. So we were waiting for, I guess we, you know, we were about to call a, a taxi We usually stayed, like many writers, uh, back in the day covering the Lakers at the Forum at that airport Marriott, which is, you know, maybe about a 10, 15-minute ride from the Forum. And we were probably waiting, you know, none of us ever rented a car in L.A. We're usually in and out the next day or two days, whatever. So we were just waiting for a taxi. And here comes Dr. Bus out of the employee entrance there. And... You know, we strike up a conversation with him. And he said, where are you guys go? What are you guys doing? And we said, oh, waiting for a ride back to the hotel. Why don't you come with us? And he had, there were two young, beautiful women with him. Mm-hmm. And this limousine pulled up. And they were heading out to some club. And I think there were three of us. And the next thing we know, we're out in this club with Jerry and his friends, <laughs> you know, ordering <laughs> drinks, dancing. At some point, I would say maybe 45 minutes after we got there, he comes up to us and says, I'm out of here. I got another limousine coming and says, but, you know, you guys, you guys have fun. You know, hit a couple of other clubs and the driver is at your disposal. And so that's what we did. We drove around. We had some booze in the back. 
Right. You know, we probably got back to our rooms about four o'clock in the morning, not in the greatest condition for, you know, an early, an early wake up call the next day. But it was such a, a spontaneous thing that only someone, the way I look back on it, uh, who loved life and loved people uh, and included journalists as people. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And it does, it does contrast to the way James Dolan has done business at the Garden in that I can't ever remember a time in the 20 years, 19 years, whatever it's been, that, that he has been at the helm where you pass in the hallway in the bowels of the arena and you even get a smile. Usually the head is down and just charging right past. Just, you know, not, it's not a level of comfort in dealing with media and people who are around the, the building in general. For you on a, on a book like this, it's as deeply personal as this book must have been. What was the toughest part about telling this story? You know, you're, you're talking about two lives or essentially different worlds. And, you know, someone who I spent a fair amount of time with her through the years, but our, our main connection was the garden. So, you know, I knew her kids, five children. My wife and I were invited to many a, a Christmas Eve dinner that she would have with her family. You know, I tell the story in the book about how the night of Game 5, 1994 finals, the OJ night, and I, you know, the game ends, the Knicks are up 3-2, they're one, they're one win away from the long way to championship, and I bang out my bulletin column lead, and now I'm rushing into the back to get some quotes and, you know, rewrite it for a later edition, and I bump right into Michelle, who sat right behind me, and she said, you know, when are you leaving? And I said, for where? And she goes, for Houston, dummy. And I said, tomorrow afternoon, I think I have a flight. And she goes, uh, call me later with a flight number. I'm going down. I've been sitting here for 20 damn years. And if they're going to win the championship, I'll be damned if they're going to do it without me there. So Michelle and Spike Lee, you know, <laughs> except with a lot less fanfare, you know, we're down in Houston going down for the count in game six and seven. And while we were in Houston, we spent a, a lot of time together. But the hardest part was finding enough common ground in our lives and not getting too technical about the basketball aspect of it, because I wanted this story to be transcendent of basketball. I mean, I, people have asked me, what's this book about? And I'll say, well, it's sort of a sequel to When the Garden Was Eden, in that it, you know, it covers the years, post-championship years, when I was a reporter mm -hmm. around the garden, meets Tuesdays with Maury, a generational bonding story. So that was the hardest part. My editor kept saying to me, keep it focused on the relationship and what it meant to you. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is that there are different threads that run through it. And one of the things that I really wanted to explore because the last, you know, it's called Our Last Season because the 2017-18 season was really the first year that Michelle couldn't go to the garden on any kind of regular basis. She went to a few games and I took her to one of the games and got to sit courtside again, which was a treat. Yeah. But for the most part, her health was deteriorating and she couldn't really go. And she had meant so much to me. So I made sure I spent a lot of time with her watching games on TV. We'd go out to dinner in Stanford, Connecticut, and then we'd go back and watch a game. At the same time, I left the New York Times full-time staff in 2016. And although I was doing a fair amount of freelancing, each year it was a little less and less because the Times was moving on, you know, 
Scott Cassiola became one of the basketball writers. They hired Mark Stein, which was a major acquisition for them. So there was less of a need for me to weigh in. So both of us were kind of going through withdrawals together. And the hour last season, that's where the title comes from, because the book really explores how difficult it is for those of us, and really, no matter what it is we do for a living, or even as an avocation, something we do as a hobby, to finally let go, give up the things that help us create an identity and how we define ourselves. I know I had a difficult time, and I'm still struggling with that somewhat. As I said to you before we came on, I was envious of all of you guys who were in the bubble. Right. Because as difficult as I know it was to be away that long, it was also something that I'm sure you'll look back on, you know, 20 years from now as a career-defining event. And also, I was still mourning Michelle when I was writing it. And part of me was having difficulty getting in touch with those emotions that I wanted to convey. Mm -hmm. because, you know, it was just such a difficult time. And this was like, I don't want, I never wanted to call her a parent because she had five children. That would be unfair to her children. They were her kids. Right. Um, I'm closer in age to her oldest children than I am to her, or I was to her. But it was like losing a beloved family member. And because her death occurred rather quickly. I mean, we knew she was, I knew she was, her health was deteriorating. At the very end of her life, they discovered lung cancer. It was too late to do anything. So while I knew she was deteriorating in health, I didn't expect to lose her as quickly as I did. The other thing about that personal tone that I was talking about, that I was asking about in the book was, your, your wife clearly understood the relationship you and Michelle had. I loved when she told you, like, you better call her. Like when you were trying to come up with what you were going to say during uh, your your speech at the Hall of Fame, like, you know, and you're wrestling with it and trying to figure out what to do and that your wife understood, call Michelle so you can get the advice you need on how you want to do this. Was it a situation where your family maybe and her kids even understood that you guys feel a certain place for each other in your relationship? And I, And I'm wondering if when they read the book, did that maybe shine even more light on that? connection that you guys have? I just got my shipment of books. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, I plan to send them each uh, a copy of the book. Given the way the mail is today, it might take a while to get it. <laughs> they all, I think, understood the role that I played in Michelle's life. I think invariably that, you know, all five are, uh, I think I mentioned the book, are really interesting, smart, funny people. And, uh, but they, I'm sure they all, they all, and the book does explore Michelle's relationships with her children, the sacrifices that the family had to make uh, when their father left, financial hardships they endured, um, some of the bewilderment at their mother disappearing three nights a week during the basketball season to hang out in New York City, uh, and even the amount of money she was spending you know, to support that habit. The fact that they knew me, that I was around their family for holiday dinners, things like that, uh, made it a lot easier. I was invited to one of her son's weddings. But I'm sure that there were times for one, two of them, maybe, maybe three, where, you know, the relationships between parents and children 
are often far more complicated than they are with friends because the baggage of childhood is dragged along into adulthood. So I think on occasion, something might be said where one of her kids may have thought, does she care more about Harvey than she does about us? <laughs> right, right. You know, I think they also appreciated the fact that by the last year of her life, only one of her children was around the New York area. Mm-hmm. Two were in California, one was in Florida, and one was in New England. So just for, you know, as her life narrowed, because she had lost some friends and, you know, again, people move on. She was always very close with Lori Hamamoto, who was the another one of these courtside relationships that involved. And she had been the Knicks communications director at the turn of the century and then went on most recently to work for Patrick Ewing at Georgetown. And she and Lori were very close. Um, and I think they appreciated the fact that there were people around to look in on Michelle and also spend time with her. You know, those dinners, those watching those games, uh, because they were far away. When the Garden Was Eden, one of your previous books was, was turned into a 30 for 30 documentary. So, I mean, you can tell stories from different stages of, of people's lives and also from a different stage of your life. Um, you mentioned you were going through the process of stepping back from the times and from what you had, had done on a daily basis. That was your, your normal. How different do you think your mentality was writing this book, given the time frame that we're working with, as it might have been earlier? in your career maybe, or at a different stage of your career. I'm I'm wondering what that reflection was for you writing this story at this time. That's a very good question. And I would say that the last chapter of the book is a letter to Michelle that I Mm -hmm. sat down and wrote because it was the first year, it was during the first year that, uh, the first season, I should say, that we didn't share our love for the the game. And uh, I found myself a lot, especially on Sundays, that was our usually our phone catch-up day. She was a she loved to watch the uh, the morning news shows on Sunday morning, and then and then I would call her and we'd talk about whatever. And no matter what we were talking about, our lives, our families, invariably would get back to basketball. And it, it just was one of those things, you know. And actually, my wife suggested it. She said, you know, you ought to sit down and write about your thoughts write things that you would have talked about with Michelle as if, you know, you're filling her in on what's going on. And, you know, at the time I didn't, it didn't occur to me to do it for the book, but I was kind of flailing for an ending. And I thought, well, you know, that's how I would, I would love to have the opportunity to tell her what went on because I know she'd be dying to know. Um, I think when I was writing this book, I kind of felt I'm at a point in my life where I take nothing for granted. I was writing the book during my 67th year. I I turned 67 last year. And my father passed away at that age. And although we obviously led different lives and mortality was on my mind, I had lost Michelle. And certainly now having left the time staff and my career, while I like to call it downsized, not over, because the R word scares me, (laughs) still scares me. Right. I think just the perspective of the ending, there are things that come to an end, whether it's career, whether it's health, and to have it in perspective and to appreciate it. I mean, we rush through our lives. We're so busy, not only just doing, but also anticipating. What I got next? What project? What, right. what assignment? I think 
throughout the course of this book, I tried to be able to step back and appreciate not only the career I had, but the people I've gotten to know and associate with and have relationships with because of that career. And I think um, if there's any one takeaway from it, uh, Michelle, but also many others, just by being around Madison Square Garden and being around courtside all those years. The other day I did a thing for the Times. It was sort of like an essay on the future of courtside in the age of COVID. I mean, what's it going to look like if we go back to semi-normalcy? We're still going to be indoors. There's still going to be some risk. There's still going to be some apprehension. And I touched base with some of the people I've known through the years, including Spike Lee. Right. You know, I remember Spike, before She's Gotta Have It came out, he used to come down just to talk to the beat reporters and tell us, hey, I'm an NYU film guy and I got this, I'm working on this film, keep your eye on it. And then the ushers would come and chase him away and he would have to stay 10 feet in front of the ushers, dodging and weaving, uh, because he was sitting upstairs. Right. That's how long I've known him. And I always remember, I always told him that, that one day my wife and I were walking down Broadway on the Upper West Side and we see this theater and it says, Spike Lee, she's got to have it. And this line of people waiting to get in. I said, that's the dude from the garden. <laughs> we immediately just got on the line and walked in. We were like one of the first, I guess it had just premiered. And I don't know, it's probably playing in one theater, two theaters maybe. Right. And we saw She's Gotta Have It. The next time he came down, I said, I saw your film. But that was long before, right. you know, he was courtside sitting on Celebrity Row. So I think getting back to your question, I think it was an appreciation, you know. Uh, none of this is forever. And if this is to be my last nonfiction book, I do try to dabble with some fiction. Uh, some people have accused me of writing fiction for many years. <laughs> but um, if this is to be my, my last nonfiction book, so be it. It's, yeah. it's deeply personal. And I wanted to be able to have that all in perspective. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Harvey Ayrton, the book is Our Last Season, a writer, a fan of friendship, Penguin Press. Um, like you, like your previous work, I'm sure this one will be a smashing success. It was an enjoyable read and uh, certainly one that makes you think, kind of knocks around in the corners of anybody's head. You know, like you said, just the perspectives and the stories. Um, fascinating work as always. Thank you for, for taking some time to talk about it here on the Hangtime Podcast. Thank you, Sekou. And, and let me say thank you and everyone who sacrificed to be in the bubble. For those of us who love the NBA and basketball, those nights watching the shows, the games, were, for me, a chance to really get back to the feeling of life as normal. Yeah. Occasionally, the Zoom fans were jolted you back <laughs> to where we are in the world. But, you know, just a chance to tune in and, and watch basketball and watch you guys talk about it was a treat. Yeah, and, I appreciate uh, that. Hopefully, you don't have to do that again. <laughs> I know. Hopefully we uh, hopefully the next time we all run into each other it'll be in an arena like normal. Or at least fingers fingers crossed. Yeah, like what used to be normal. Harvey Ayrton. Um, thank you so much, sir. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Stay safe. Thank you. An 
epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. See how to elevate your live sports experience at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply.